Hello, I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which I speak to some of our best-known chefs about their passion for food, what sorted them along the culinary path and what keeps them going. Now, we hope you manage to make the best of Christmas wherever you are and whatever you cook turned out brilliantly, if not. There'll be a couple of tips to improve your skills in the kitchen over the course of the next hour or so. We'll also talk outdoor cooking as usual. And as regular listeners know, we're giving away another state-of-the-art Weber barbecue in this episode. Now today, I'm grilling a true giant of the industry. And I'm I'm a little bit fangirly over him. Uh, Rick Stein has become synonymous with Padstow. He opened his first restaurant in a Cornish fishing port in 1975 and has not looked back since. Been a regular on our screen since the 80s and broadened his restaurant horizons and written numerous best-selling books. Rick, welcome. Lovely to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Simon. Very nice to see you. Always enjoyed going on your programme and uh, always have very interesting guests. Yeah. I, I mean, Sunday brunches tend, sort of tend to be that thing that it's a little bit random, I think, is the best way to describe it, which it's actually... Having you on is kind of a little bit what your life is. It's always that thing, because I think people see you, and most people, myself included, the first contact or knowledge of you is seeing you on our TV screens. But, of course, your, your background... OK, how do I put this nicely? You're a bit of a blagger, Rick Stein, on the quiet, aren't you? Definitely. <laughs> found out, to be honest. <laughs> so, so, so let's start at the beginning there. You know, never mind kind of all the childhoody stuff. Your starting point wasn't in food at all, was it? Well, no, actually. When I, when I left um, university, I wanted to run a nightclub, right? <laughs> but that, that in itself is weird, right? So you've got a degree from Oxford. So, of course, you come out of one of the greatest universities in the world and you decide you want to open a nightclub. Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose it was while I was at Oxford, I, d- I did quite a lot of sort of... I had a little disco, which I tr- sort of drove around Oxfordshire doing parties, mostly undergraduates' parties. And I enjoyed it so much, I thought, well, blow all this um, learning. All I want to do is run a disco. And it just so happened that in Cornwall, where I was spending a lot of my... I was living in... Yeah, I was living in Cornwall at the time. There was a real need for discos in the summer. So I started running discos there as well, and they were successful. And then I found this nightclub on the quayside in Padstow, right? Now, I've often said this, that, that a nightclub on the quayside of Padstow is, it just doesn't happen. I often think <laughs> it's like finding that opera house up the Amazon, you know? This is in the <laughs> early 70s, because, you know, Padstow was a sort of small fishing village, right? Why did it have this nightclub? To this day, I don't quite understand why the guy that opened the nightclub <laughs> opened it. It was called the White House Club. So me and um, uh, my sort of best friend, we got we came into some money and we bought it off this guy and we opened it as a disco and all would have been well but for repeated fights <laughs> mostly amongst the fishing community of Padstow all of them now look back and say well, I met my missus in your club <laughs> that was that was some brilliant days anyway <laughs> but back then Rick Padstow wasn't really a tourist resort at all, was it? I mean, it was a traditional fishing village. Well, it was. I mean, there was sort of like a 10-week season in the middle of the summer when, like any fishing village in Cornwall, it filled up with tourists. But it wasn't It wasn't a particularly sort of um, tourism-orientated place. I always think that period in the 70s, I mean, I, you know, when I was growing up then, almost 
British seaside resorts were on a very deep trajectory downwards. You know, we don't, you know, now you think there's some fantastic British seaside resorts or British coastal towns. But then that's the start of cheap holidays abroad. So we were almost turning our back, weren't we? Absolutely, Simon. It was our sort of paranoia that in the early 70s, the package, as you said, the package stores started and everybody wanted sun. You know, the, the, the sort of subsequent worries about sort of skin cancer and stuff, nobody cared about that in the 70s. And frankly, that's what we assumed people wanted out of holidays was lying on a beach somewhere in the Mediterranean and burning yourself sort of brown, you know? <laughs> we just thought we didn't have a chance. But the thing is, it, it sort of turned out all right, I think, because at the same time, we were starting to build up a sort of, myself and other restaurants in Corn were starting to build up not a national reputation for good cooking, but a bit of a local re- reputation for good cooking. Let, let's not move away from the disco too soon. You're not getting away that lightly, Rich Stein. So <laughs> when you had the nightclub, what did you do there? Well, I started by doing the disco, which was what, you know. Oh, I, I so wish I'd been there. <laughs> what were the floor fillers back then, then? <laughs> well, I mean, it was very much sort of top 20. I was lucky enough in having a... Um, a friend called Terry, my, actually my best friend's then wife, um, well, still is his wife, uh, who who came from Manchester and bought, I don't know which club she worked in, somewhere like Rails or the Twisted Wheel, I can't remember, but bought all these 45s down and gave them to me, right? And it was all this sort of like soul music with labels I hardly knew. But, I mean, now very common, like Monument, Atlantic, East Stacks, you name them, but with all these soul acts. So I played a lot of that in the early days and then a lot of top 20. And then my own said personal things were like, I love the doors. So I used to close my disco every every time with LA Woman with lots of strobe. Brilliant. I love it. Because you've always been into music. I mean, you said you're on a disco. I, I, say, I, I very rudely said, you know, you're a bit of a blagger. But was that the premise? What because because of a love of music, or was it a love of nightclubs? You know, what I mean, I think sometimes people fall into two camps. I know plenty of people who own nightclubs. They're not bothered about the music. They like that whole essence of being there. Well, actually, that's a very good question, there, Simon. Because what turns me on really is people having fun, right? Yeah. Actually, I've got this nephew, Judge Jules, who's you know still practicing. I think, although he's now gone back to being a lawyer, but looking after musical acts. <laughs> And he sort of picked up a certain amount of enthusiasm for discos from me, he says this, but both of us share this love of seeing people happy and enjoying themselves. And whether that's discos or nightclubs or eating in a nice restaurant, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I will promise I'll move on from discos now. (laughs) Um, But did you, at the end of the night, play slowies? Because it is the 70s. I know you finished with LA Woman, but did you kind of drop it down with a few kind of like... I mean, if it wasn't LA Woman, it was just my imagination. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. All right, okay. so so we've had had the disco, we've had the nightclub. So where does this this take us to? Where where did the change come? Because that that led on to the first bit of food business, really. The real problem was we we had enough money to buy the club, but we didn't have enough money to keep it running while we were trying to build it up. We didn't have enough capital. So we just let anybody into the club. And that was part of our undoing, (laughs) because the whole point of the club is you exclude lots of people that you really shouldn't allow in there. But we couldn't afford to exclude them. And we couldn't afford, ultimately, to exclude the police who turned up in (laughs) plain clothes 
purchased a number of drinks and played on the one on bandits we had at the time. And each one of those drinks was an offence. <laughs> so we ended up in magistrate's court and we had our license taken away, which, you know, was the the worst of times, but actually the best of times. So where are we? What year are we? What year did you get your license taken off you? 74. 74. Okay, right. So yeah, so we're around imagination, we're around kind of like the stylistics. Okay, I'm just I'm just I'm just we're in mud and tiger feet. That was uh that was 1974. That's right. Funnily enough, when we had all our license taken away, we opened part of the building because it was actually a three-story building doing kids kids discos right <laughs> mud and tiger feet i know it so well <laughs> 12 year olds <laughs> rushing around the dance floor. <laughs> all right so so we've got so we've lost our license you've got this building so then what happens well then um we would i was just very lucky really because there were a number of booze licenses in the building but the police missed one of them which was a restaurant license on one of the floors each floor had to have separate licenses in those days so i opened we both me and johnny opened a restaurant right so could you cook at this point i had before i went to university i'd spent some time as a chef in a, a, a the great western hotel in Pad, paddington uh-huh. I knew I'd learned how to cook, but the, the great thing now looking back is my mother was so, and my dad, but my mother was such a brilliant home cook. I just knew how to cook, you know, and I've said this many times. If you're lucky enough to have parents that love food and know. Same. Yeah. Okay. I, I need to say no more. Yeah. So that when I came to actually having to cook for customers, I, I sort of knew what I was doing. I mean, it was all really simple. Like it was like grilled lemon sole, grilled lobster as well things like sort of fish and chips. And we used to do a baked crab. It was actually in a gratin dish with cheese on top. We did scallops as well in the same sort of way, scallops Mornay. So it's all very simple stuff. But actually, there's very few restaurants like in the 70s they were doing anything, certainly in seafood. Well, I, I remember I remember in the 70s, I remember around that time. So I would have been nine then. And like going out to eat wasn't, what it is now where we do it well obviously excluding the kind of pandemic where we do it almost as just a matter of course restaurants back then really were were pretty much high days and holidays they were and i think one of the sort of difficult things for restaurants was that nobody knew how to eat you know yeah so you could sort of get away with murder but it wasn't doing anybody any favors and um i just remember i had this um very advanced sort of futuristic dish on a fillets and mackerel with a sort of red pepper capsicum pepper sauce right and i just um, filleted the mackerel put them under the grill and then spread this sauce on it and i remember this woman saying um maybe you'd learn how to fillet a fish properly before you started putting the fish on <laughs> my mouth's full of bones right <laughs> and and, and how, how many covers were you i was sort of looking back i think we started at about i think what capacity actually was 70 Right. That's very important because I, we didn't realise this is my first wife and me, Jill, and she put in as much effort as I did really into it. Our restaurant was a 70-seater. Most of my friends opened restaurants with 30-seaters. The problem with a 30-seater is, yes, you can offer them much more sort of detailed and sort of exquisite cooking because you've got less covers, but you don't make any profit that you can roll on. You've got a 70-seater, you can. It's funny because my, my, my first restaurant, Greens, which we've still got, but is now 90 covers. When we opened, we were, we were 28 covers. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, it was just myself, my business partner. We were just there 24-7 all the time and really, really loved it. 
but the thing that we found was exactly that. One, there's not a load of money in it. So, you know, you're working your backside off for, for no money. But also, you have two bad days for whatever reason. You can never make enough money up at the weekend when it's busy because you've still only got 28 covers. Whereas with 70, if you're quietish on a couple of nights, you're still all right. Then on the busy nights, then, then you're OK. And, and you're right. But when you start off, you've no idea, have you? You don't know what you're doing. I did. I mean, it only dawned on me years later that that's why we've been successful. It was almost not so much the cooking, the fact that we had the numbers, you know. <laughs> but, but I love that. And I, and I think that that's, that is the thing about, about our fantastic industry, that so many of us, that almost by default rather than design, you end up being successful. But you see why so many people fall by the wayside. Because like you say, it's almost like if you'd had a 40 cup restaurant, you'd still be doing nice, interesting food. But like you say, you'd make no money. We may not be sitting here talking now if that if that had been the case. True. I mean, the thing was always that I felt like quite sort of inferior because the food I was turning out, because it was busier, was, you know, it wasn't like sort of Michelin star food. It wasn't like, you know, high stars in the good food guide. We sort of scraped into those guides. And I was always quite jealous of these smaller restaurants. But actually... We had it right. (laughs) Yeah. You can't actually do terribly well just on having lots of stars. You need a bit more than that as well. Around that time, though, because, yeah, just listening to that as a a menu, like you said, seafood wasn't really something that everybody kind of did particularly at all. Yeah. Was almost that, that location massively important to you even then that, you know, you've, you've got, well, you've experienced all the fishermen who were like battering each other in your put in the nightclub. But then by the same token, you're then buying, food off them you're buying produce off them i still have like jokes with them you know you know now it's with their sons who are sort of grown up fishing about those days but it's sort of again it's like you're saying you sort of thought it would have been bleedingly obvious that you're fishing you're selling the fish that's coming across the kid and sort of to an extent it wasn't but it it took a long time to realize that that we had a usp right you know this fish landed in padstow and sold at a restaurant on the quayside was something special at the time, well, you've got to remember in the 70s, like transport was so much um, sort of more or harder to get anything. Yeah. So, I mean, part of the reason for selling seafood was just because it was there, you know, and there's plenty of it. And it was it was cheap and a lot of it under it underused. I mean, squid was pence. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I think still now, I think that Britain has a slightly weird relationship with fish and seafood. I think we're all a bit, still people are a bit scared of it. They still think it's going to kill them. So back in the 70s, then, you know, if it wasn't kind of cooked to death, then I don't know. It's hard to, for people who are too young, like Ben, who was my producer on this, Rick, he's sitting there, I can see him looking, thinking, I've no idea what these old Ben are talking about, because obviously we have, we have lots of beautiful fish all of the time and we have lots of British produce, but nobody did it. We always looked to France, Spain, Italy, anywhere else for culinary influence that we Brits were kind of doing something that was a bit rubbish was always the, the, the demeanour then. I know. I've spent ages trying to work out what we what we got wrong, but I, I think it's for some reason, and some people say it's the industrial res- revolution that people sort of left rural or sort of seaside living and went to work in the cities. But for some reason, we lost an enthusiasm and a love for, for fish. And I mean, you look at the Spanish or the French, they've never lost it. No. And then you get this sort of the curious fear about fish, particularly fear about Things like lobster and scallops. There's this sort of idea that there's some inherent thing in shellfish 
which is going to kill you, which generally is so untrue. Most of the food poisoning, as you will know from doing endless <laughs> courses on it, is caused by cross-contamination in fridges. It's got nothing to do with what's in the actual fish. Yeah. But it's funny, something that you said there has really sort of struck a note with me that, you know, Italy, Spain, France have never kind of lost their love affair with fish. But you almost think as a, as a nation, I always feel that we lost a love of ourselves a little bit. You know, that every bit of us we saw as being a negative. Everybody was doing things better than us. You know, I remember sort of growing up constantly feeling that, you know, the French were better than us, the Italians were better than us, the Spanish were better than us. And I don't know if that was also reflective of our food industry, that we said, OK, you know what, they're doing it better, so let's actually not try and compete. I don't, I don't know, it's a weird one. You just remind me that when you're saying that about Pink Floyd, I can't remember, it's probably Dark Side of the Moon, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. Yes, yes. It's all crap, you know. Yeah, yeah, we're in grave danger of going back to that, aren't we? There's <laughs> the love of going back to bloom. Yeah. So we've got this kind of great restaurant that's going on and it's kind of working for you. So we start that in, in 74, 75. So what's, what's the next stage in, in the world of Rick Stein? It's, it's, so Because you're an ambitious man and you, you're clearly an entrepreneur, which is a nicer word than blagger, and you've, you kind of, you're making a, a name for yourself. So what happened next? Well, I was fortunate. I had a friend who, who used to edit women's magazines like Women's Realm, Women's, I can't remember what they were all called. This was in the 70s. I don't think there's one left now. But he said to me, Richard Barber, who's the journalist, who I still talk to, really good friends with, he just sort of saw that something that I couldn't see. Well, first of all, he said, if you've ever got anything to, uh, to say, just a single side of A4 paper, put it on and send it to every newspaper and every radio station, TV station in the area. And then he started, he offered me a job writing a column in Woman's Realm, right, a fish column. And then he got talking to one of his friends who happened to work for um, Penguin Books, who were looking, was just looking for a new... The thing is, the thing you don't get when you're young is that why would anybody be interested in you, right? Yeah. You must have felt the same thing. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still do now. Because, of course, they're interested in you because... Everybody else is getting older and they need young'uns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When this woman just got in touch and said, I'd, I'd like you to write a book for penguins, I was just like, what? You know, this is like crazy. But, and so I wrote a book called English Seafood Cookery. I called myself Richard Stein there because Rick sounded a bit sort of like bit American. <laughs> and it won a prize. What year is this, Rick? What, what, was, what year was the first book? I started writing it in 19... 19- 88. Yeah. I can't remember when it was published the early 90s. Yeah. And as a result of that, the director, David Pitchard, a, a, a fledgling programme by one Keith Floyd started, right? And he was working in Bristol at the time, and Keith had restaurants in Bristol, and just got to hear about me because of this book and because, you know, people had then started going to the restaurant. I remember in the early 90s, I got a load of American journalists came to the restaurant courtesy of the Cornish or the British Tourist Board, I think it was, English Tourist Board then, I think it was called. And the people from the Tourist Board said, you know, these, these New Yorkers asked us to take us here. We had not heard of you. Wow. But Floyd was... The, the, I mean, I, I want to talk about David Pritchard in, in, in some detail as we move forward, because I worked with him once and I thought he was phenomenal. I, I felt in the work, week I worked with him, I learnt more than at any other time probably in the whole of my TV career. But we'll, we'll come back to, to David. But Floyd, 
he created Floyd to a certain extent, excluding kind of Keith's character. That way of mild sort of travelogue and lovely kind of breaking that fourth wall, he set up almost that, that genre that we still use today in TV. Yeah, he did. Well, I, I've invented this word. I'm sure it's other people have used it. It's called blokeifying, cooking for blokes. Yeah. And that included drinking wine, swearing if you can get away with it on the BBC, but, but generally cooking on trawlers and just obviously enjoying yourself, you know, having some fun and in a sort of slightly irreverent and sort of, yeah, generally a bit sort of pissed up sort of way, really. <laughs> So, so, so you met David. Right, let, let, let's let's go. Let's start on the telly then. So, so when what was the first show then, Rick? So, so David comes along, has heard of you, clearly meets you, likes you, and you know you're clearly going to like him because he's an incredibly gregarious human being. What was the process that got you in front of cameras then? Well, I think it was just um, they were looking for material for the first series that Keith did. It was called Floyd on Fish. And so um, one of the researchers actually reminded David, although I think he knew about me because of the book and all that, but um, it was actually a presenter on BBC Southwest called Sue King came to the restaurant, really liked it, and I really liked her and went back, and David was running the station then. God, I wonder what he was like running a television station. He certainly wasn't cut out for that sort of thing. But... I mean, I should probably fool people in that David Pritchard is probably, well, if you think of Keith Floyd and what he was like, David Pritchard was probably the um, the more uh, gregarious side <laughs> of Keith Floyd, at, at least, I would say. Yeah, no, he was, um, I mean, the, the, the great thing about him was that he, he was a really good director and um, very. Well, the thing that I really liked about David, which I've learned sort of over the years, was that he was very economical in what he shot because you've probably been in situations where the directors are not particularly sort of confident. They overshoot everything, which means you have to work twice as hard, whereas David was always off getting the stuff done and going to the pub. <laughs> but the other thing about him is he, he really loved food, and so did Keith. They were seriously into food, and um, I think that shows in all of Keith's programmes. Completely. Completely, and again, almost almost that that gap of filling in for what we're saying that you know in the in the seventies, eighties that Britain undermined itself in terms of what it did with food. Then the likes of Keith celebrated what we were doing, and okay, maybe influences were coming from outside of Britain, but it almost set up that whole delightful movement that began around the start of the nineties when suddenly, as a nation, we started going. Actually, do you know what we have? great seafood off the coast we have amazing kind of sheep we have amazing cattle we we grow fantastic produce almost at that time that start of the 90s is when there was a change in what we believed in i think as chefs as well it was extraordinary i mean why we didn't see it i just don't know i mean of course i was always saying we we should sell and buy we should buy locals but it was i didn't see that there was a sort of national point to it i always remember once simon hopkinson a friend of mine who had was Bendham and um hilaire before that but he came down once when i can't which paper it was i think it was the independent he was writing for at the time and there was a guy that we were getting our new potatoes off um called george chenaz uh, just down the road okay and that was our new potatoes and simon said i'm gonna write up about George's wonderful potatoes. And I was thinking, why? Yeah. Yes, that's it. That's the question always, wasn't it? Why? 
But of course now it's sort of like obvious and I don't know just why we didn't see it and make more fuss about it. Well, I, well, I remember, like, you know, I opened, I opened Greens in 1990 and I used to go to market every day. So I go to market five days a week. And I remember that being a tremendous education in terms of produce where, you know, you'd see like a box of peppers that had come in from Holland that were six pound a box. And then you'd have these other peppers that were nine pound a box that had been grown in the UK. And that understanding of going, if they, these are local, why are they, why are they more expensive? Well, because they're kind of better quality. And then you taste them, you'd understand it. And you just, that whole thing started to happen. And the likes of yourself, and for me in the Northwest, the likes of kind of Paul Heathcote and Nigel Howarth, who became real kind of voices for, for the Northwest. And it was happening all over the country. And I think to a certain extent, when we were in the industry, you felt this just seems logical. And then there seemed to be a little bit of traction that happened with newspapers and then with television suddenly caught on to that. That's true. Well, it had to happen, didn't it, really? I mean, looking at it now, but it just, it's just extraordinary how long it took. All right, so let, let's go back to it. So, so, you, you, so you've done the bit of stuff with um, Floyd on Fish. And then when did you then get thrust into, into the limelight? Well, it was about 10 years after that we, I did a bit of filming with, with Keith. And, and David and I think by then David had actually David and Keith had fallen fallen out, which in the scheme of things was going to happen because they're both highly sort of mercurial characters and they're not going to. It's a bit like a, a rock and roll band; it ain't going to last. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and I think David was sort of looking for someone else to to do cooking series with, and actually it was his girlfriend Maggie from New Zealand who he said you ought to do something with Rick, you know. And we were friends. I mean, I yeah. by then I met him with Keith and I'd seen lots of him. And we just just loved having meals together, you know. And so eventually he gave me a screen test, which wasn't a great success. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> what happened? You know, it's probably the same with you. that You, you know, very few people are natural in front of a camera. It, it takes a bit of time, you know. I sort of found that, you know, what, what you try and do is you suddenly stop being you, don't you? That you think you need to be a variation of yourself rather than actually, well, the reason why people like me is because I'm me. So you're in camera and you turn into some kind of dreadful, I was going to say, I'm going to be very disparaging to local radio DJs. I don't mean that way. You, you turn into some terrible caricature. You turn into smashy and nicey, trying to be too, too clever. So what was, the, what, was the, what was the first series that, you got, that they commissioned for you then? Well, it was called um, Taste of the Sea, and really it was just a sort of almost a documentary, but but not about my life as a as a chef in Padstow. And it was really about the dishes I cooked and the people that supplied me. So there was lots of fishermen, you know, involved in it. Lot, lots of cooking, of course. And in those days, a fair bit of cooking outdoors, you know, on cliff edges, <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> But I think the reason it worked was that it was it was it was real. We didn't fabricate anything really. That, that it was my life. Padstow's real, and we didn't have to make up stories. It did help having the little Jack Russell Terrier Chalky in there, which yeah. inspired by by David to just bring a sort of the sort of dog that everybody secretly loves because they're sort of naughty and they snip people and they just get in the way, you know. But it was groundbreaking. I mean, you know that 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 trajectory from kind of Keith Floyd to you because I always always and I still say it now when people say to me who do you like to watch on TV then you are genuinely always kind of top of my list and I think that that whole thing of that 
reality that now we're all so used to. It was groundbreaking when you did it and having Chalky there. And the fact that you would you would ruminate about things outside of the food, I think, is a, is a real skill. That was really both me and David, really. I mean, the, the great thing about David, he's got a very short attention span, right? He had. And therefore, the way he cut the programmes was really fast, not too much of anything. So he would sort of like make me do ruminations at times because we've had enough cooking now. That's gone on far too long. What's it like after work then? What would you do, you know? Yeah. And that's why I got the dog in, the chalky in as well, because it, it just in TV, it, it's got to move on. And he, he was great at sort of pacing things, I think. And it, it did give me a chance to sort of speak for myself, you know, because, I mean, we did have long conversations over far too many glasses of red wine about food and about restaurants. I mean, that's what the, the lovely part of being a chef is you do, you know, drink late into the night just talking about food all the blinking time. Yeah. So a lot. So alongside of that, then. So were you still just with the, had the one restaurant then? Were you still in the same premises? You still in the you still in the old nightclub? I bought a, a hotel in Padstow at a, you know time when I can't remember which recession it was, but we bought it bought it quite cheap. So we had um, some Petrox as well at the time, and we don't then as a sort of antidote to seafood. So it was like modelled on a French bistro. So it had sort of like steak frites and. French onion soup and things and various things that I put in there as well. So at that time, I mean, you're, you're starting to build, how do I put this? You've become a serious player then, really, haven't you? You know, you sort of think from, from the starting point of kind of cooking some food because you had a building that you needed to do. So that becomes successful. You've written a book, you become an award-winning author. You then move on, you start to work in the media, you then have the hotel. Are you conscious at that time that you're attitude to life has changed you think as well not really i mean um <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that i so wanted you to say yeah i'd sit with spreadsheets and i found then that i was looking at profit and you go nah not really <laughs> well it just sort of i'm you know just things sort of happened so there wasn't there wasn't a sort of master plan it's just you know we were able to buy other properties in padstow because they were cheap and it, it made sense and I think the, what drove drove us in those early days is not so much having lots more restaurants, it's actually having rooms. And it wasn't so much about the fact that rooms make money once you paid the capital costs. It was just that we just felt we weren't being treated seriously when we were only like a day destination. We just thought if we get people staying overnight. On the back of that, we opened a deli and a cafe and the idea was to sort of like once they're in Padstow we try and staying with us, we'll try and keep them as long as possible by giving them other sort of things to eat and drink. And was Padstow changing then? I mean, you know, we, we, we talked about in the 70s when you started the advent of package holidays. We've now almost come in a full circle where British food, British society, the British countryside, all of a sudden we're going, you know what, it's actually not a bad country, this. You know, it, it, you know, our, our, our continental neighbours don't necessarily do everything better. So all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're getting people who, who are saying, I don't need to get on a plane to go on holiday. Yes, that, I mean, it was changing. It takes a long time. And um, but looking back over it, what happens is that you start something and you're, part, you're good at it. You know, the, the restaurant was good enough. And then you start influencing actually people that come to work for you to look at the sort of the way you're doing it. And inevitably, some of them stay, you know. So like the, the fact is that a lot of the restaurants 
around Padstow have got some element of, of working for, for us, not all of them, but I'm thinking particularly Nathan Outlaw, who was quite an early working for us. And you start off by thinking, help, there's not enough business to go around. This is going to be shocking, but actually it's not shocking at all. And then Paul Ainsworth turned up, I think probably because probably Gordon Ramsay said, yeah, you want to get down a Cornwall, you good idea to set up next to a successful restaurant. And again, it's it's been nothing but positive for, for us because as soon as you get someone with Paul's, his, his food's different to us, but he's got a Michelin star and it's very sort of considered and lots of people like that sort of food. You've then got a sort of gastronomic destination. And I think that's how it work it works. You start with a nucleus of good food and then it, as it expands, it just draws more people in and then more people want to come. And then you have that thing as well, don't you? That almost I always feel that hospitality becomes that hub of any society. And then all of a sudden, like you say, because of you, you attract other restaurants. Other restaurants then attract peripheral industries around that so the local pub has to up its food game then alongside that then you'll get something that's like an artisan baker etc etc then it even moves outside of the food and drink industry because it's a nice place to be so therefore well you could have a really nice kind of clothes shop shoe shop interiors shop that lovely expansion and you always i always think that you come back that the hub of it tends to be hospitality based totally right and you know as you probably know we're all of us are sort of that, that we're all very much in favour of a sort of hospitality minister, really, because it's it's such an enormously important sort of cash generation in this country. And it's, you know, culturally, hospitality is much more than just feeding people and putting them up for the night. Because, you know, I've always said I won't go back to anywhere in the world if the food isn't good. You know, there's certain places where I haven't sort of enjoyed the food particularly. And I go, nah, I can't be bothered. So where... Where wouldn't you go back to, Rick? Well, I'm going to give it another chance, but Corsica, right? Yeah. Love the mountain food in Corsica, but I just could not find anywhere decent to eat seafood-wise. And we, we were told at the time that Corsica, being surrounded by sort of flat plains and then the sea, that was where malaria was, and was traditionally, and nobody would set up a decent house or a decent business in those coastal regions. So if you wanted beautiful ham, fantastic cheese, great mountain wines, fabulous. Yeah. I think it's all changed. I haven't been there for 20 years, so, you know. But, but, but you're right. I mean, it's the first thing. You ask anybody when they've been travelling anywhere, what was the food like? It, it's that, it, it is that whole thing that comes together. So uh, being at the, the, the starting point, really, for everything in Padstow, then, of course, then there was that, that headline that I don't know whether it, it's... Uh, whether you like it or not, that people started calling it Padstein. I mean, what a fantastic thing to be called, but did it have its downside that people were associating you with it? it it's tricky because, you know, there's quite a few Cornish people that don't like tourism because it's changed their sort of where they live to such an extent. And I mean, even if you talk to really lovely locals, there, there is a worry about the, of the whole thing that. It's the same in any tourist place that what people go for is ruined by the people going there. I mean, Venice is a classic example, you know. I felt a bit sort of responsible for bringing too many people to Cornwall. But at the end of the day, I've got a restaurant. I just want people to come to it. And I mean, if they choose to come to it, fine. But it's not, I'm not like a planning for the future, you know, sort of socially at all. It's just a bit embarrassing. And um, 
I think it sort of pissed a few of the locals off, but mostly, you know, I've been here for most of my life. But it is funny though, because when you because when you go to Padstow and you kind of wander around, and the first time I went there was probably about probably about fifteen, sixteen years ago. No, maybe longer than that, maybe twenty years ago. And you would then get that whole thing where any single business in Padstow, you you could walk along and someone would go, Rick Stein's that. Well, it's a wool shop. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's an entrepreneur. I'm not quite sure that there, there was a, there was a Smith that you own. You actually own the whole of Padstow. <laughs> in right, Simon, because the, the reality is that in you know the, the in terms of who owns property in Padstow, there's, there's people who owns far more of Padstow than than I do. Yeah, I think it's just the combination of, of being on TV. Really, you know, yeah, and there are three or four places with my name on it, and people say, oh, it's all bloody Rick Stein, but yeah. There's a lot more to Padstow than me. So, so as, as Padstow, outside of, of your influence, you've always been massive to it. Have you seen a massive change in Padstow in, in recent years? Because obviously since the 70s, there's kind of a massive change. Because it feels that it's become such a lovely destination now. Well, the whole of Cornwall, really. Of course, it's busier. But, I mean, this last summer with, you know, COVID and so many people coming to Cornwall who probably would have gone abroad normally, we all thought it was going to be terrible but it wasn't you know there were a lot of people down on the inner key there in Padstow but I go swimming every day and I walk through them actually I hardly ever got noticed you know I did have my mask on of course (laughs) but personally I like summer in Cornwall I like people on holiday you know yeah I don't find them irksome but I think it would be nice if everybody could have a holiday somewhere and you, you see the joy in people in somewhere like Padstow, which is very pretty, it's not a bad thing, you know. I always remember when I was young, my house then on Travaux's Head was next to a caravan site. And I used to say to my mum, my dad was dead by then, oh gosh, it, you know, it's a real bore having this caravans next to us. And she said, why? Why shouldn't they have a holiday too, you know? <laughs> I, I've got a confession to make, Rick, that I actually, um, I got off with a parking fine in Padstow by dropping your name. We were in we were in Padstow, and I'd I'd parked on one of the 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 open air car parks down on the front, and then we'd gone off for a wander around, and then I'd lost track of time. Thought, oh yeah, parking's going around. I'll go back and kind of top up the meter kind of thing. And then um, the guy is kind of writing the ticket on my car, so uh, he goes, oh no, can't can't believe Robert goes. So and he recognised me. You know, this is sort of in in recent times. So he goes. Oh, have you been to see Rick? So I didn't even know you then. Said, yeah. So, so said, listen, uh, let let me let me give you a reference. He said, say that I've said that you know that, that we should actually drop the product. So I wrote this letter that said I'd been to see you, and they let me off the parking fine. So I I've been meaning to tell you this for a very long time. So thank you for that, Rick. <laughs> so anybody that's listening. If you get a parking ticket in Padstow, just drop Rick's name and it will be cleared straight away. <laughs> yes. So what's next then? What what happens with you next, Rick? Or are you quite content these days? I suppose at the moment with, with the COVID crisis, nobody knows what's next, except that we have done quite well with our lunch and dinner boxes. In other words, sort of, I think it's called Rick Stein's at Home. So basically we do a three-course lunch or dinner, which you, all the materials are there. and um, but you do end up having to cook it, which I think is good because everything's prepped, but you still have to cook it. And that's been really successful. I'm just wondering, and I think like lots of other uh, restaurateurs, whether that has a future. I mean, we won't know until COVID's over, but um, 
I had all the boxes as a sort of guinea pig. And there is something really quite nice about sitting at home and having, you know, there's your lobsters all ready to go and a little bit of sauce here and some scallops already in the shell for you to grill. You know, and, and it's very easy. I think there's something lovely about it as well, that it makes people, one, feel that they're doing a bit of cooking. But then because we live in a world of kind of social media, it's great for kind of your Instagram and, and your Twitter. But then also think, wow, you know, what? I'm actually cooking Rick Stein's food. There's something very lovely about people feeling that they've achieved something. It does feel that it's, it's a very nice sort of inclusive thing. And, and, and it, it takes hospitality in a different way. My worry about the, the meal kissing, we've been doing a few with, with Greens, is that when we're all, if you like, back to normal, whatever that ends up being, will it stop? diners come in and sit in, in our restaurants who knows yeah you know faced with empty you know closed restaurants we didn't have any choice any more than you would have done no 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 absolutely right yeah and, and i and i do and i love it but you know you sort of think you know because that's the thing because because again you know at the very start of this you said that what you love very much is about people having a good time and i yeah. feel exactly the same about the industry don't get me wrong i love kind of fantastic michelin starred food but for me my my ethos is i want people to come and have busy lively active places where where it's where it's fun one of my business partners coined the phrase that if you go to a restaurant and it doesn't make you want to have sex then it's not a good restaurant and i kind of quite like that as an analogy you know, I just tell you this david this is typical david right at one stage <laughs> do you know what he said he sort of pontificated. Do you know what? He said, you just had a lovely meal at, um, at Rick Stein's. Do you, A, write a report, or B, go upstairs and have sex with your missus? <laughs> That's it. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think that that is, that is what our industry is about. It's a sexy industry. It is. It is. And it's, you know, it's very close to sex, really, food. You know, it's satisfying a sort of basic, hardwired need. And, you know, we gloss over it and say, you know, make, but, but basically it's about pleasure, isn't it? You know, it's just that's what it is. Yeah, and you always want a nice nap afterwards. <laughs> you certainly do. <laughs> All right, so now I'm going to challenge you now, Rick. Every uh, episode of Grilling, we, we challenge all of our kind of, um, all of our guests to create a dish okay so so your challenges you can have any cut of meat fish vegetables whatever you've got to do either a marinade or a rub we need a sauce and we need a cold side dish but there are two things that you need to do you've got to sell it to me uh, obviously in, in your own inimitable way you have 45 seconds to do it and it has to be cooked on a barbecue so are you ready are you ready for your 45 seconds of, of majesty okay okay three Two, one, go. It's a butterfly leg of lamb. And basically, you've got to learn to cut the bones out, which is not hard, just take out the bone, flatten it out. And then you've got a marinade, which is things like pimenton. It's mostly a dry marinade, very finely chopped garlic, um, lemon juice, rosemary. 20 seconds gone. Oh, God. Lots of salt, chopped up bay leaves, thyme, all that sort of stuff. So it's a dry marinade. You put on that for 30 minutes all right and then you cook it you've got 12 seconds left stein get a move on <laughs> make sure it's undercooked slightly rare in the middle and slice it it's fantastic uh, well, uh, all right well that, that's 42 seconds I'll, I'll i'll allow you that and what would you serve it with rick 
Well, I, I just at the moment, I'm loving a, a winter salad, which is just very thinly sliced white cabbage with celery, um, walnuts, apple, um, a dressing, which is marked with me. It's always four parts of um, sunflower, or one part of vinegar, a nice vinegar, and then a little spoonful of mayonnaise, seasoning, um, parsley. But it's just the way the dressing and the mayo cling to the white cabbage slices it's just lovely. lovely oh an onion plenty of onion in there too yes. so that would be what i'd be serving at the moment in the winter and i do cook on the bar the outside as well so do you barbecue much yeah because i've got one in the garden so i mean if it, there's any meat you know if there's a steak or i do a whole small sea bass or bream on it and i'm afraid it's a gas barbecue i've got a charcoal one which i've got which i use as well but it just means you can light it up and in 10 minutes 15 minutes it's ready to go and you get that flavour it's just outside the back door so yes i do i love i love barbecue food. i think there's something nice about that outside cooking you know i think anybody once you get into that thing i think particularly in the winter i actually think getting outside and cooking in the winter is so good so right Simon, because i was out there the night before last and just it's quite mild and a bit of cornish mist with the barbecue at night you know and just cooking and getting all these smells of cooking meat as it was the other night. You just think, this is great. Why Why just do it in the summer? I know. I, I, it, it's funny because uh, I, I, I did my turkey on my barbecue a couple of years ago. And I really, really enjoyed it. There was something really nice. Aside from anything else, there was something quite nice about every now and again popping out and getting away from all the nonsense of kind of the family and pretending that I was actually uh, going out to the barbecue and just having a little cheeky glass of wine on my own and having a moment in that cold. There's something, there's something really, really nice about it. I totally agree. I think winter barbecue, outdoors, cold, dark, lovely. All right. Uh, as I mentioned, we're giving away a Genesis 2 gas barbecue, a WeberConnect smart grilling hub in every episode of the podcast. Genesis 2 is a premium gas barbecue that makes it easy to get great tasting food. The smart grilling hub is an accessory which connects to your phone via an app and it guides you step by step through preparing and cooking, even telling you when it's time to flip your food and when it's ready to eat. It's a serious piece of kit. I genuinely use it all the time. It's magnificent. So if you want to win one to try Rick's recipe, all you need to do, head to weber.com forward slash grilling. That's weber.com forward slash grilling, where you'll be able to find the terms and conditions and the closing date for entries. The competition is open to UK residents only. The Weber website is also the place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons and a fantastic range of recipes, including seafood dishes like octopus a la plancha and barbecued paella. So, so in, in this in this sort of second half of this, Rick, it's really about one of the things that I I always love, and we've maybe covered it to a certain extent, is that the pivotal moment in your life. I, you know, I always think that all of us, whether it by design or default, there's something that takes you in a path in the in the career that you have that makes you think. I remember that moment, and it it can be. It could be big, it can be small. If we haven't covered it, or even if we have got ready, do you have that moment? Well, I guess for me, it was this sort of um, realisation that I'm, I love cooking, I love the whole atmosphere of the, of the restaurant, but I do realise I'm ambitious. And at one stage, this is actually before I got the book permission, the restaurant won a little 
competition in the Sunday Times for the best restaurant in England, England run by the RAC. This was in the sort of late 80s, mid 80s it was. And um, I just was able to use this tiny little award to sort of advertise myself just a bit more out of Cornwall. And I got a couple of reviews from the sort of national papers. That was a pivotal moment for me because I realised that I was wanting to do a bit more than just have a small restaurant in Padstow. Funny enough, mine is in 1992, we opened Greens in 90, 1992, The Guardian did a thing about, you know, 10 of the most exciting new restaurants in the UK. And we were in it. And we bear in mind, we were a 28 cover BYO vegetarian restaurant in the South Manchester suburb. And it, it was a similar thing where I thought, wow, this is this is kind of quite amazing. You know, I, I'm a guy with a degree in fashion and textile design who's taught himself to cook. And you're in that place and it, you, you suddenly then go, I must be doing all right at this. And it's, it's a really lovely thing. I don't know about you, but I, even when I talk about that, and I've talked about it many, many times, there's still that little shiver down your spine that almost doesn't ever leave you. Yeah. I mean, I think what your experience is worth, well, I'm sure you have done, but it's worth it to people because sometimes, you know, we know you have to work so hard in our industry, but it is a means to an end if you want it to be, you know. You'll never, you will never work harder than you did in that in the in greens in the early days will you no absolutely right and and it's funny because you look back on it with with kind of mixed emotions do you i mean you sound a bit monty pythonish if you're not careful you go well of course we used to work 100 hours a week for 100 pounds and we could only afford to eat gravel but i mean that that's the reality is it when you when you start out kind of without a load of money behind you without a load of experience you are making it up as you go along absolutely but you're sort of young and you're fit and it's a great time to be alive yeah I fluctuate all the time because I'm sure you're the same. People say to you, I'm thinking of opening a restaurant. And almost my, my knee jerk is to go, don't. <laughs> but in reality, in reality, I don't I don't mean that at all. But you think, wow, you don't know what that entails. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because I think, you, and I've, I've done that to people, said don't. Yeah. But no, normally when you say don't, they get more and more in, enthusiastic about doing it. Do you think, though, that now what you did and, and me to a, to a much lesser extent, do you think it's much harder to do now? Because almost customers are more sophisticated and demanding and well-travelled than they were when, when both of us started, really. Well, I think you just just change the change of what you're doing. I mean, I'm, you know, I've got lots of my ex-chefs, well, a few of them, I'm saying lots, like, but, but have opened places and done well with it. And of course, because they've taken on board a lot of sort of Southeast Asian ideas, Chinese, Japanese, you name it. Um, that's that's the new sort of reality, and and, um, and some of them have done really well with it. So I, so it, I think that when you're young and you're enthusiastic and you're energetic, there's always going to be in food. There's going to be opportunities. Yeah. So let, let let's talk practical things then. So when when it comes to the restaurants now, what happens in terms of menu development? How much? Do you allow everybody else to do stuff? How much do you want to get involved? You know, we, 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 you've got a good few places now and a good few dishes to, to contend with. Well, I mean, we tend, because I've written so many recipes, I tend to try and persuade the chefs to stick to the recipes, but I don't, I don't insist on what they should do. It's just that, you know, there's always going to be chefs in all the restaurants who are gifted and, you know, be mad not to, um, you know, ask them to contribute, and they, they do. The problem, of course, is is trying to sort of maintain a sort of consistent sort of standard, particularly if you're you're bringing in too many dishes at once. So it's sort of like 
a mixture of trying to encourage creativity, but just pointing out it's got to be within certain bounds. And what the main bound, which never seems to work, but in theory it should, is that I should get to taste everything. You know, yeah. <laughs> half the time, get someone they say, "Oh, didn't you get to taste it?" You say, "No." <laughs> You've got to be sensitive to this because I mean, chefs are creative. That's why they're in the business. And you don't want to stamp on it, but you want consistency and you want them to really understand. You know, I say to people like, I can never cook the perfect Dover sole because every time I think I can do that little bit better. And certainly um, some Japanese chefs, there's one, um, you probably heard a film called The Ramen, Ramen Heads, whereas this one Japanese chef who is now in his 60s, I think, still cooking ramen noodles and maintaining he'll never get it right. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I do love that. Do you, is, it, is the way in which you approach recipe writing change? Because you've had so many external experiences from tremendous kind of travels all around the world from a, from a TV perspective, never mind personally. Has it changed your, your view? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the main thing I'm trying to do now is make the recipes ever simpler. And I don't mean just going down to sort of three or four ingredients. It's just that, that if you look at recipes and over the years the the tendency is to make them simpler and i think part of the reason for that is that people have become much better cooks so you can sort of make assumptions uh, about what people will do to the food when they're preparing it which you wouldn't have been able to do in say the 80s and if you look at 80s recipes even from people that are you know still practicing the art they're bloody complicated you know <laughs> plus the fact that most many of the dishes in the 80s were restaurant based and you know, restaurant cooking is not home cooking. You've got like lots of staff, if you're lucky. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of processes, which you would be a mistake these days to draw on, you know, three or four different sources or stocks or things in one dish, that sort of thing. I think that's a really good point. I, I like that thing as well about that, you know, people are better cooks these days. So has it equally then changed that we say, say if you're writing a book, does that change almost the way in which you write it? Because you're allowed to make those assumptions. So you're almost not having to hold the hand quite so much. Absolutely, Simon. And it's really liberating because you can make assumptions that um, you couldn't have done before, you know. I mean, you know, I can remember like having every time you ask somebody to deep fry something to go through the process of, um, yeah. well, they're not going to have a proper deep fry so they need to put some bread in and fry it yeah 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 right temperature <laughs> yes yeah it, 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 it changes a lot and i think that i think that we're in a good place do you do you almost feel that the other side of where we are with covid that it will regenerate the business because i don't know about you i've sort of felt over the past few years that almost and i'm not criticizing big chains that almost we've had a drop off of standards because almost the expansion has been faster than the skill set that we have in the UK. So as a result, we, we, we've gone a little bit lowest common denominator. But the other side of it, whilst there will be casualties, the positive side being one, that we appreciate hospitality more and two, that maybe we'll, we'll get back to better quality. I'm sure you're right. You see so many people who have gone back to cooking at home and and sort of rekindle the joy of cooking at home and a, a joy in the quality of what they're producing. And also, I think, probably a, a realisation that food doesn't need to be sort of complicated and possibly not always sort of full of the new and latest sort of um, massive hits of chilli or umami or whatever it is. You know, there's a sort of um, understanding of appetite 
I suppose one of the things that slightly worries me is the amount of continual sort of bringing in of, you know, like Korean, I can't what it's called, the cabbage, kimchi, you know, and everything's flavoured with very, very intense flavours, was when I was, I would lock down in Sydney for four, five months, and I did end up cooking a lot. And I just began to sort of go back to some of the dishes I'd known all my life and revalue them. I mean, there's one like a Greek one, which I picked up in Corfu years ago, pastizio, and I cooked it about five times, you know? Yeah. Such a great dish. And I think there's that's a, there's a sort of um, people will go back to, and, and I'm actually writing a book at the moment about home cooking and just looking at some of the recipes I've done over the years and slightly revaluing them based on where I am now, you know? Because I, I sort of feel during lockdown, I've almost fallen back in love with cooking i've never fallen out of love with it but i've found very much what you're saying there that i've almost reevaluated what i do at home so that whole thing of rather than i, I think there's a certain extent when i'm at home I'll, I'll cook for fuel whereas i've gone back to loving cooking for people again and and just having lots of little things and not worrying too much about does that really go together but i just fancy making a bit of that with a bit of that yes yes this one rather good Nigella's she's very her new book that she's exactly saying what you're saying really yeah cook eat repeat eat cook yeah that's right cook eat repeat is what I call yeah it's a lovely premise I think that's simplicity and I think that maybe that's what will happen with hospitality as well to a certain extent that we'll love it and I think you know again almost coming in a full circle the start of this was about your love of wanting to people to enjoy themselves. I know about you, I can't wait until we can have a full restaurant again. And that noise that you cannot buy of people loving what is going on, both in the kitchen, on the front, and from customers, that noise and that sensation that sends that shiver down your spine, I miss it so much. It's funny because actually I find restaurants in Manchester, I haven't been to yours, I will next time, but sorry. <laughs> no, I so said thank you for coming next time. I'll make sure you do. You could almost sort of tippeth pie a city by its customers. Yeah. You know, Manchester customers are noisy. Yeah. Very enthusiastic. It must be a joy to have a restaurant there. Oh, it's great. And, you know, just wanting to get that back is amazing. Now, the final thing we do in our podcast, Rick, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this with you, is we ask all of our guests for um for their little secret. So we try and avoid it being, you know, a fancy restaurant, but it might be a deli. It might be a little beach shack somewhere. It might be a bread shop. Anywhere in the world that when you sort of think of your happy place that you would like to be, and at the moment we do that a lot, think, yes. where are you going to take our listeners to, Rick? Well, I was because you gave me an example, and it was Blinking Paul Ainsworth's Got the Golden Lion in Padstow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a great There's a pub on Bombing Moor, which... Um, it's called the Blisland Inn, right? And it's in the village of Blisland, which I've been going to. It used to be called the Royal Oak at Blisland, but now it's called the Blisland Inn. It's just that me and my sister and my brother-in-law, we love walking on Bodmin Moor. <clears throat> I mean, people love, obviously, the coastal walks in Cornwall, but Bodmin Moor is a great place to walk. Yeah. The thing to do is to have a pub at the end of the walk. Yeah. <laughs> and there's two. There's the Rising Sun at Altonham or the Blisland Inn, and both of them are fabulous, right? But the, the Blizzard is particularly fabulous because they've got all these really wacky beers, local beers. Um, and they have like, if you like real ale, which I, I, at times I really love it. That is great. Plus the landlord's taken to wearing amazingly large print Hawaiian shirts and he's got 
very impressive <laughs> tattoos. And I, I, it's just a pub I've been going to like most of my life. And the funny thing is, well, I used to take my kids, well, I took them camping just down the road on Bodmin Mall, and they were really worried about the beast of Bodmin when I took them there. <laughs> and then we went to the pub just near my son's. And they, one of the beers is called the Beast of Bodmin. Brilliant. <laughs> so it's um, anyway. Next time you're down, give, give it a go. It's but the other thing really good about it is it's just filled with very interesting people. Yeah. And I think the moors, you get a very eclectic collection of people living on moors. The same with Dartmoor. And when they meet in the pub, it's like a very very special atmosphere. And they also they do ham egg and chips, which I really care for. Oh well, they, well that 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 that's the thing because that that's the thing, is it? It's always going to be about the food. And in front of, I adore pubs. I think that pubs are such a such an integral part of kind of what what we do in the UK. And I think you know that whole thing about Tom Kerry said that fantastic series about saving the pub industry. And I think that you know we do need to do it because they are quite magnificent things and, and if we're not careful then we'll lose that huge history and that huge identity and it's just so so important well i mean it's it is our culture isn't it you know we lose it at our peril i think really so there we go yeah completely well well rick it's it's always always lovely to speak to you it's always lovely to see you also now i've got to know your jack who actually is is always very complimentary to you and i just sort of think I, I always, I always think that if if my son Hamish was ever asked about me, there aren't any of the words that your Jack uses. That uh, if, how bizarre a text has just come through from my son now. Oh, there you go. This is this is this is how. So seventeen year old son, as opposed to your Jack, who says very nice things about you. My son says, "I've got a haircut at four. Will you pick me up?" Well, what do you expect? There you go. <laughs> that 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 that's the kind of life. That's the difference between our two sons. <laughs> um, but the the thing that I, I've, you know, I, I've always been a massive fan of yours from a TV point of view. From the the times when I've had conversations with you and met you, you've been on the show. I think that lovely passion that all of our guests on on grilling have comes through and it hasn't stopped from from the guy who in 1974 had a dodgy nightclub and was kind of playing agadoo to where you're sitting here now as a as, as as basically a national treasure rick it's always a joy to see you thank you so much for joining us on grilling and see you see you on your show i think i'm coming on next month so yeah you are indeed yeah i'll see you then all right lovely to see you rick thanks for doing this mate cheers Thanks very much for joining Rick and I on Grilling. Who knew that Rick Stein was a dodgy DJ in the past? Hopefully we've given you a few ideas as to what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber barbecue this winter. Head to Weber.com for plenty more recipe ideas from racks of lamb to your more traditional kebabs and burgers. And if you head to Weber.com forward slash grilling, not only will you find details of the competition, you'll also be able to get a free barbecue Bible cookbook with the purchase of selected accessories. You can subscribe to Grilling on your favourite podcast app, Raters, and please tell your friends about us too. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks for listening. Listener.